0: This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Father, we thank you for the promise in your word that you are able to give mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so we ask in your mercy and grace, you'd help us to again feed well on the bread which is before us in Hebrews 6. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well good morning everybody, we're traveling through Hebrews and we come today to chapter 6 and for those who know their Bibles, this is probably the most famous warning in the New Testament about losing salvation. It's the most unsettling paragraph for Christian people. It's also interestingly followed by the most powerful comfort and unbeatable encouragement. The two interestingly sit together next to each other. And I suspect that this is because the writer is a very skillful pastor and knows that there are times where we need serious warning and there are times where we need profound encouragement. And he is trying to make sure that the readers, like us, don't drift into carelessness or despair to fall off either side of the road. It is, I think, a a skill to get somebody who's in a precarious situation to stay watchful and wise without becoming paranoid and desperate and pessimistic. I don't know if you read that a man in America was tragically struck by lightning and killed on a family picnic And the sad irony was that his father had been killed 48 years before, struck by lightning. And this man in the electrical storm that was building up over them said to the friends around him, don't worry, he said, lightning never strikes twice. That was essentially the last thing he said. Now, how do you say something to somebody who's just a little bit cocksure as they head off into an electrical storm or stay in one? and prevent them from being either careless on the one hand, or totally terrified on the other. And that's the skill of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, that he walks between the two. And we're going to watch and see how he does that. If you happen to have missed some of the previous Sundays... Uh, Let me tell you that the writer is seeking to prevent new Christians who've mostly converted from Judaism into giving up on following Jesus because things are getting too difficult. And the writer has spent the first five chapters basically presenting the splendor of Christ so that the people will see that he's got the majesty and the power and the authority to be, to do what needs to be done. But he's also got the compassion and the care and the love for people, which prompts him to do what is needed. So there is this beautiful balance or connection between Jesus as the divine king and also the human priest the one who's able the one who's willing the one who can do it the one who wants to do it and it's all set out so that we will say in the words of Peter well why would we go anywhere else lord to whom shall we go you've got the you've got the words you've got the strength you've got the grace why would we walk away well The punch of the chapters is that uh, people who do go elsewhere, that is they move away from Christ, are not threatening Christ. It's not as though by voting against him he suddenly loses office. The, the great damage and the great danger is for us when we turn our back on Christ who has all the power and all the grace that we need. So I thought we would look at the chapter under the two obvious headings which are serious warning verses 1 to 8 and then serious comfort verses 9 to 20. First of all, serious warning. I hope you know that when I pray for you and you're, let's imagine, on the role to be prayed for, that I'm praying that God will encourage you, support you, provide for you, but I'm also praying that you will go forward and make progress. There's nothing more encouraging for a pastor or perhaps a parent than to see people who are in their care make some progress and mature. That is a cause for great joy. And there's nothing, of course, more discouraging and stressful than watching people who are in your care either make no progress or go backwards. Now this pastor in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1, he wants his readers, the people who he's concerned for, to go forward and make progress. You see this in chapter 6 verse 1, therefore let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. And what he does immediately is to list six things that all seem to belong to basic Christianity. Christianity 101. He says, come on, let's move on from this primary school Christianity. And he mentions the six things repentance, turning away from sin, faith, putting your trust in God. That's pretty well how you begin the Christian life. And then he mentions baptism and laying on of hands. That's probably how you join the fellowship. And then there is resurrection and judgment. That's probably setting the goal the destination, so that the people know exactly what the issues are and where they're heading. Many commentators point out that these six things could all belong to the Jewish faith, and so the writer may be saying, let's leave behind the Jewish faith, but it seems to me in verse 1 that he's speaking of the things of Christ. So these are probably the very beginnings of Christian commitment, Christian devotion, Christian involvement and he wants them to go on to maturity. Now, I wonder if I was to come down with a microphone and say to you who've been here for the last few weeks, what is the number one sign of maturity according to Hebrews that we have seen so far? I wonder whether you would pick this up. The number one sign of maturity is not necessarily that you know a lot or that you've been around a lot, or that you're old, or specially clever, but it is that you're being governed by the Word of God, even as you live in the world. That's the mark of maturity, according to Hebrews. You're in the world. Yes, that's where you are, and you're meant to be there, but the Word of God governs your brain. Uh, It's um, clear, I think, as you read the chapters in chapter one, that he says, God has spoken. Chapter two, we must pay careful attention. Remember chapter three, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Chapter four, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Chapter five, this is solid food. The mark of being mature is that the word of God governs your thinking even as you live in the world. And it's as if A parent should one day pull a little child aside and say, do you know something? We're moving soon. We're moving from here. We're moving into a bigger and a better house. And once that message from the parent has gone in the ear of the child, everything begins to change. The child looks at the present and says, Well, this is where I am and this is where my responsibilities are, but I'm not here forever. I'm moving somewhere else. And that message, which the child trusts, governs the way they think about the present and the future. And the Word of God, the Gospel, comes to us and it says, You're not here forever. You're here for a certain time, but because Christ has died and Christ has risen, and he has brought to you eternal life. You're moving eventually to a bigger and a better place. Think like that, plan like that, live like that. And you can imagine how sad it would be for a child who's been told that they're moving if they lock themselves into this house that's marked for demolition and don't prepare or move to the place which is actually going to be a proper home. So this is the longing for the people that the writer is writing to. I'm longing that you'll think by the word of God about the whole pilgrimage plan of God and that you'll see your your life in perspective. And now in verses four to six comes the warning. Now there are blunt warnings and there are harmless warnings We have some warnings around our property at the moment telling us about how to walk and where to go and which doors don't work and which doors do work. But there are blunt warnings like the pictures of sharks on the beach at Botany Bay that basically say swimmers will be eaten or something like that. One of the bluntest that I've ever seen was um, a proper poster in Perth next to the railways And uh, it says in very nice, classy writing, uh, if you trespass on this track, don't bother about having your remains scattered. We will be doing that for you. That's about as blunt as I've seen. (laughs) But verses four to six are in a very unusual category in the New Testament because they're so searching. And unsettling. Let me read them for you. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now I can imagine a proper Christian, a converted Christian with a sensitive conscience, reading those verses at a time of failure or sin and thinking, that is absolutely terrifying. And there'll be others, of course, who'll read those verses and say, well, that's not me, that's pretty forgettable and harmless. But you see, the writer is injecting the verses at a very key part of the letter because he wants them to be serious about falling away. And because the readers are getting sleepy, and we know that from chapter 5, this is a very good wake up call. And the obvious questions that we ought to ask ourselves when we read these verses are questions like this Number one, is he speaking of Christians? Is he speaking of Christians who have eternal life? If he is, can eternal life be stopped? Good question. Question two, are these people that he's writing to just on the fringe? Are they tasters? Are they visitors? Are they the sort of people who see Christianity from a distance, but they never get reborn, they never get converted? If so, why is the language so real, being enlightened, being a sharer, Peter O'Brien, for example, in his excellent commentary, thinks that this is the language of conversion. And another question that we might ask is, what does impossible mean? Impossible to bring a person back to repentance. Does it mean it's impossible for the person to repent? Does it mean it's impossible for the church? We know it's very difficult to get people to come back who've turned their back on Christ and gone away. Is it impossible for God? Surely it's impossible for it to be impossible for God. Well, I want to suggest to you that um, this three verse warning is simply meant to squeeze out of you a cry to God that he will keep you safe and wise and faithful. You see, if you take these verses and you take them as a soft threesome and you just say, well, that's not me, you'll miss the blessing. If, however, you take the three verses and say, this is desperate, this is pessimistic, this is fatalistic, there's no hope for us, you'll miss the blessing. But to walk between the two and say, these are verses which are prompting me to lift up my cry to God, to be faithful, to be safe, you've missed, you've you've grasped what is really there. There's enough warning, you see, as Spurgeon says, as if God is saying, there's the precipice, don't go near it. There's the poison, don't drink it. So that you'll lift up your prayer to God, please keep me safe to the end. Now I want to say a little bit more about these verses because some of you like to think hard about them. There are some comforting things in these verses. You'll see, for example, that they're written in the third person. There are those who have fallen away, but verse 9, you, says the writer, are probably not those people. There are some people who think that these um, readers are tasters. Uh, John Owen, the great Puritan, thought that they were tasters. Don Carson suggests that they are tasters. But we just need to be careful that we don't see this warning as being therefore irrelevant and feeble and weak. There are some chilling things about these verses. It literally says these people have fallen. It doesn't say if, as our translation puts it, it literally says they have fallen. And some people think that these fellowship dropouts are like the thorny soil, that is, there was some growth going on, something was happening. But then the judgment of God has come on them for their sinfulness and uh, it is the judgment of God that makes it impossible for them to repent because it's the plan of God that they don't. And that's a chilling aspect. But I want to say again, the writer is not trying to paralyze the readers with these verses. And the genius of the verses is that they don't allow you to fall into boredom on the one hand or into some kind of pessimism on the other, but they prompt you and me to send up a very wise, safe and healthy prayer that says to God, please don't let me fall away. I want to go through to the end. I want to get to the finish. I don't want to drift or fall away before the great day of seeing you face to face. That's a healthy prayer. There's a Christian writer called Sarah Groves who's written a song called Stir My Heart. Uh, She wrote it when she was only 19 years old. But uh, this is what she put in the song. These are some of the sentences. If circumstances should blind me, if fear and doubt should bind me, if trials mean I don't stand strong, if fools persuade me truth is wrong, stir my heart, take me back, renew me. She goes on to say in the song, I swear it won't happen, but what do I know? Peter swore the same, hear the cock crow. Now is that not a very healthy thing to say to God? If things get to the point where I'm getting sleepy and careless and hard-hearted and sin doesn't matter, please intervene because I need your help to be renewed and refreshed and revived and restored and not fall away. And there are many people, of course, who tragically have fallen away people who've sat in these pews and sung the hymns and said the creed and shaken hands and listened to sermons would now describe themselves as unbelievers. One of the youth leaders who led our children at this church would now describe himself as a firm and convinced atheist. I know a pastor who's completely given up the Christian life. A man wrote to me this week who said he was a Satanist and had listened to the talk on the radio and said, "'Good for your flock.'" I'm past that. And um, enclose some satanic verses for me. So you see that it is possible. We've seen it in experience for people to apparently make progress and then to give up. And that's not a game. That's not a small thing. Eternity will show that that's a terrible thing and a tragic thing. And that's why we must lift up our prayer every now and again, that God would help us to stay and keep going and and be faithful. Some have been restored, wonderfully brought back. There are people here this morning who've been restored by God at certain times, but there's others. And maybe you're one of these people this morning and you feel the weeds around your feet and they're creeping up your body and they're choking your faith and sermons are not getting through to you as they did in the past. And it's time for you to lift up your voice and say, help me please restore me because I don't want to fall away and become one of those almost impossible to restore. That's why verses seven to eight are also very helpful, aren't they? Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, this cannot be a reference to producing sin because we all produce sin. No, this is the sort of person whose life is marked just by thorns and thistles and no longer by anything which is the sign of faith, hope, and love. And we need to send up a wise prayer that God would help us. Who better to listen than Jesus? who's got the ability and he's got the compassion, who can provide mercy and grace in time of need. The only thing that will prevent us from sending our cry up to him is some kind of unbelief or foolishness on our part. He's absolutely able and willing to help us. So let's hear the warning. Now the second section is serious comfort, verses 9 to 20. I remember many years ago reading Hebrews for my quiet times, and I was in quite a sinful period of the Christian life, a sort of a rut, um, a fairly um, careless phase of my Christian life, and I realized that I was coming to Hebrews 6, and I thought to myself, "Ah, here we go, we're going to have this passage which is going to belt me around the head, and in a kind of masochistic way, I opened the passage as if to say, come on Hebrews 6, do your worst, beat me up, come on, whack me around, I know I'm hopeless, and then I got to verse 9, and it really did melt me. Because he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He'll not forget your work, the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. This is a lovely section where he calls them beloved verse 9, the only time in the whole letter he calls them beloved, and how interesting that he does it at this particular point after the warning. And he says, we're confident of your salvation. Why does he say this? Verse 10, because he's seen some crops appear which are faith and love. I don't know how long ago he saw the faith and the love, but he's seen it, and that's enough for him to have some confidence that God is at work. Um, He's therefore, in a very pastoral way, fanning the embers of their faith. He's not criticizing the poverty of their fireplace. He's fanning what's there. It's a very wonderful pastoral section. And it's very interesting when he says, God won't forget, verse 10 because he doesn't mean that God now owes you something as if you did some faithful stuff and now he's obligated to to bless you or something like that. Uh, What he's saying is God is obviously at work because he has been. And I'm praying that you will be fanned into flame. That's basically what he's saying. He's not saying God has confidence in you or God believes in you, as some crazy Christians seem to say, because God knows what we're like. He knows the sinfulness of our heart. Jesus did not trust himself to people, but he did love people. And he did give them the confidence to come out of their cave and find compassion and help and strength for the particular need that they were going through. And this writer seems to have similar affection. Uh, It's not as though he sees great potential in these uh, readers. That's always, I think, depressing when people say that you've got great potential, because what they're basically saying is you've now got to come up with all the uh, future strength and productivity. But what the writer sees is God at work, signs of salvation, And because he sees God at work, he wants them to go forward. And the best way to go forward is to have new faith in Christ. And it's not to stir yourself up to produce faith that you can't possibly produce. It's to have another look at how great and good God is. And that's what he does from verse 13. He takes his readers, including us, back to the day where God spoke to Abraham at the time when Abraham was being asked to sacrifice his son. And when Abraham had been faithful, trusting God, and um, getting ready to commit his son to sacrifice, you remember that God turned around in Genesis 22 and he made an unbelievable promise to Abraham. And this is what he said, It's not recorded in Hebrews 6, the actual oath, so I'll read it to you from Genesis 22. God said to Abraham, I swear by myself that I will surely bless you and I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Now, friends, that is a powerful promise. If God had just said to Abraham... I'll bless you, that's enough. If God says, I'll bless you, he'll bless you. Nothing will stop it. But the Bible tells us that God did something more than make a promise. He gave an oath with the promise. Now, you know, when people give oaths today, they swear by something. By dot, 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 I will do that. By golly, I will do that. And the New Testament, of course, warns us against using oaths when we are indicating that our word is inadequate, and we therefore need to prop up our honesty. But here is God who does not need to prop up his honesty, and who could simply make a promise, and that would be everything and sufficient, Deciding to deliberately make an oath, and because there isn't anything greater than him to swear by, he swears by himself, and he therefore gives a promise with an oath. And as Bill Dumbrell helpfully says in his commentary, he doesn't do this to bolster his credibility because his credibility cannot be improved upon. He does it to strengthen our weak faith so that we have two reasons for trusting him. One is he's made a promise and he never breaks his promise. And the other is that he's given an oath by himself, which is for the sheer purpose of giving us confidence that he will do it. Well, the writer is not saying that if you who are listening to this morning, this particular message would please believe that therefore everything would happen. He is not saying that. He's not saying to his readers, please would you believe, please would you believe, everything will happen if you just believe. I know it's very difficult to believe, but I'm asking you to believe anyway. Nothing of the sort. The writer is saying, God has spoken, he's given his word, and he's added an oath. Therefore, his promise that he will create absolutely uncountable descendants is definitely going to happen, unstoppably going to happen. You can sit on that promise, you can hang on that promise, and you will travel right through. The promise is unstoppably sure. And that's why he says, in verses 19 or 20, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see what the writer was saying? Whether you believe this or not, it's going to happen, because Christ has gone through the curtain to the other side, and therefore we have an anchor through the curtain, and all you need to do basically is wrap that rope around yourself, and you will be there, because it is as sure as the faithfulness and the power of God. So, What could this writer say more to these wayward Hebrews or to us this morning who are perfectly capable of falling into danger or sometimes falling into despair? The writer could not really say much more because the warning is designed to make sure that we lift up our voice to God, please keep me. And the promises are designed to say to us that whatever your condition, whatever your performance, whatever your feelings, whatever your doubts, God will do what he says he'll do and therefore sit on the promise. You don't have to produce it. You don't have to make it happen. It will happen. So let's summarize to finish. There is someone called Jesus Christ who's come into the world. He made the universe, but he came into the world. We uh, we're not owed anything. He doesn't have any obligation to us, but he's freely and wonderfully died on the cross so that we might have an open door into the family of God and one day into the glory of God. He's given us His Word so that we have promises to live by, and encouragement to go by as we walk through this world as his pilgrims. But we're very capable of drifting, and doubting, and getting dissatisfied, and so he's placed careful warnings in place, because he loves us, and he doesn't want us to walk into danger, And when we do lift up our voice and say, please keep me from danger, please keep me from drifting and falling away, then we discover that the secret of our security is not that we're going to be faithful, although that's pleasing to him and he certainly deserves it. But the secret of our security is that he is faithful, that he's going to do what he's promised to do. And that the person who lifts up their voice in response to his promises will find themselves helped and saved and carried and one day delivered right into the home. And that, friends, is an excellent set of reasons why we should not turn our back on Christ. Well, let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we lift up our thanks to you for all that you have done for us, but also for all that you have said to us. We thank you for giving warnings. And because we've seen people fall into great danger, we ask today that you would help us to faithfully follow to the end. We thank you also for giving great promises And we ask that as you have given promises which you will fulfill, that you would ensure that we are part of those promises, believing, trusting, and following right to the end. And in all the circumstances which we are going through at the moment, we pray, our Father, that we would enjoy above and beyond our salvation the joy of fellowship with you on the path, and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life Words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope 1032 dot com dot au.